Well, along with David, I want to um, welcome everyone, um, everyone who's joining us virtually, everyone who's outside uh, joining and listening in. I know it's weird. <laughs> I, got some, I got some spirit fingers outside. I, I know this is weird, us being separated, um, whether uh, you're at home uh, watching on TV or if you're outside. It's awkward. This is awkward. Um, but what we're doing is a sermon series on the compassion of Christ. Um, because essentially, I mean, like what I want to do is run around and hug everybody in our church right now. Because it feels like we're so isolated, so separated, so distant. Um, and, and the reason we're doing this series on the compassion of Christ is because um, you don't need a hug from me. <laughs> we need a hug from Christ. And that's what this series is intended to be. It's intended to uh, give us a gateway, a portal, um, looking directly into the eyes of Christ. So let's pray and ask that um, Jesus would join us this morning as we look at his word. Lord Jesus, these are challenging times. Um, and Lord, it seems like every time we get our footing, the ground opens up beneath us. And this morning as we're Again, shifting the rhythms of our, our Sunday morning worship schedule. Uh, Lord, the, the changes that we've had to face this year are ever-present in our face. They're, they're punching us in the face. And so, Lord, it just seems like everything is constantly changing. Everything is shifting. And, Lord, it doesn't feel safe. Lord, this morning, though, we come to you, the one who never changes, the one who is always consistent, whose embrace uh, is tight and sure and secure. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would um, draw near to us, that despite the distance of our present circumstances, your nearness would be felt, that we would feel the warmth and compassion of your gaze. Lord, be with us this morning as we hear your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're doing a, a sermon series on the compassion of Christ. And this morning, we're uh, looking at Luke 22, 24 through 27, and John 13, 3 through 5. Let's listen to God's word. This is Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exile, exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I tell you, I am among you as the one who serves. And now John 13, 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is God's word. Um... I think in the last probably three years, I have preached or heard this passage from John 13 at least three different times. 
Um, it's a passage that kind of gets brought up a lot, right? The, the washing of the disciples' feet, the Last Supper. Um, and you need to know that the context of Luke 22, that was a conversation that, that happened during that supper. And so it's, that, that's the picture here, right? We're looking again at the Last Supper. And here's my, my suggestion to you. My suggestion to you is you, like me, who have encountered this passage many times, and probably most of you have, we have a tendency to just kind of brush by this, right? To um, I want us to look at this passage with a little bit of fresh eyes. I'm hoping that we can recover some of the shock of this passage. And I also hope that we can start to see that some of what Jesus is calling his followers to is not simply a chore, because I think that's another way that we look at this, is like, oh yeah, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. I'm supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I hope that we can see this not just as a chore, but as a blessing. All right, let me set the scene. All right? Disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Um, for Halloween, my two sons, James and John, the sons of thunder, dressed as um, Messi and Ronaldo for Halloween, right? The two arguably greatest individual soccer players of all time, right? It's funny that they dress that way because James and John are also often talking about which of them is the greatest. It's kind of like they, they kind of did that, right? It, it's funny. Um, that's what's going on with the disciples. They're like, which of us is the greatest? Um, they're all, by the way, about to abandon Jesus. So you catch the irony here. Which of us is the greatest? Um, none of us. Jesus is about to die on the cross for all of our sins. This is the night before he's betrayed and goes to the cross. And rather than taking a night off, it says in verse 1, we didn't read verse 1 of John 13, he loves them to the end. He goes low. He washes the feet of his disciples, uh, which is a shocking inversion of cultural, um, of contextual, and of theological norms, as we'll see. It's a picture of what he's about to do on the cross, right? We get that, right? That this washing of feet isn't, you know, the, the, the big deal, right? It's a picture of what is about to be the big deal, him offering himself as a sacrifice, and it's a model for what they're to do in their life and ministry. It's corrective, right, of their conversation. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at three points. I want to talk about how going low is radically counterintuitive for us, okay? I want to talk about how Jesus going low is shocking, and I want to talk about his call going low being an amazing blessing and not a chore. All right, so first of all, going low is radically counterintuitive for us. Um, I want to suggest to you that, that washing feet as a kind of model for what we do is exactly the opposite of how we think about what we should do, right? Um, Jesus telling his disciples that they should likewise wash each other's feet, um, him telling us that is essentially like him telling us, walk on your hands and, you know, and, and start doing everything backwards from what you normally experience, there are many things, though, about the gospel that feel backwards to us. So we kind of expect this from Jesus, right? Many things about the gospel that feel backward. For example, to be strong, you must be weak, right? That's one of Christ's teachings. To receive, you have to give. To live, you must die, 
right? And this one, to be great, you must serve. But, but it's so contextually hard for us, right? I want you to think about this. Think about almost every experience that you've had in life. Think about growing up in school. How do you be great? You have to be the best, right? You have to beat out everybody, right? Get the best grades, right? Try to collect the most friends, become the, the most socially cool, right? Do the best in sports, socially, right? Just in life, that carries on, right? Greatness is defined by kind of collecting the largest group, right? Or the group that gives you the best. Our friends are the ones that we want, like, serving us, right? We look for people who are going to be kind of two-way relationships, Social media, <laughs> right? If you scroll through social media, we see that this is the opposite of kind of how life works in the world. Everything on social media is about me, 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 look at me. Businesses, you survive in business and become great in business by collecting the most money, gaining the most market share. In sports, right, it's about winning the most. I talked about Messi and Ronaldo, right? Their accolades kind of pile up, right? It, it's about that. You know, ESPN doesn't do 30 for 30 on the, like, team that loses the most. I'd love to see that 30 for 30, right? But that's not how it works. And in, even in the church, I would submit to you that this kind of model for living that the world presents to us is so normal for us. When I get together for pastors almost, with other pastors, almost the first question that always gets asked is, how big is your church? <laughs> how, how many people do you got? <laughs> right? How many programs are you doing? Right? We do all of these things. It's so natural to us. And we think of Jesus calling us to wash feet or pick up our cross in, in one of two ways. We either think of it as a simple shift to our day-to-day -day lives, right? We brush past it. We go, I'm doing that. I'm doing that in some small, simple ways, and that's all that matters. That's, that's important. I'm, I'm making the small adjustments. I'm doing it a little bit, and, and so I'm good, right? We, we tend to think, okay, well, you know, there was that one time that I was nice to that one person, so I'm, I've done it. <laughs> Right? I don't need to look at this passage. Or we tend to think of it as a really inconvenient chore, so inconvenient that it's unreasonable. Jesus, really? You really want me to be like you? Right? We think about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? Really, that's just unreasonable, Jesus. We can't do it. It's out of the question. It's an inconvenient chore. I can't, I can't be bothered with that living in the world. I've got to do the kinds of things that I need to be successful, to take care of myself. Right? I, I can't sacrifice the way that you're asking me to. It's a radical reinvention, though. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You know, I want you to think about The Matrix. I love that movie. Um, I used to use that as sermon illustrations all the time. I think I've taken a break enough from it to where it's okay that I'm doing it this morning. But you, you remember the scene where Neo, he, you know, he wakes up in the little pod and then he gets flushed, right? And then they, the, you know, Morpheus and the gang pick him up in the ship and he's, and he's laying there on the table, right? And he's got all the wires stuck into him and, and he has this initial conversation with Morpheus where, where he's like, you know, what are you doing? And, and Morpheus is like, I'm rebuilding your muscles, Right? And he says, why do my eyes hurt? He said, because you've never used them before. What Jesus is doing 
in washing his disciples' feet is that radical. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm going to set a pattern for you. I'm, I'm, I'm tr- going to try to shock the system. I'm going to inject like these needles into you and try and shock your muscles to where they start to develop, right? I want you to open your eyes and start using them. I want you to start living the way you were intended to live instead of the way that you live in the world. He is calling them to a radical reinvention of life. It is totally different from what we experience. So when you encounter this passage where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, I want you to understand that this isn't something that's just a nice thing that Christians read about, you know, once a year to try and, you know, kind of like feel warm and fuzzy about what happened at the Last Supper. This was a moment in which Jesus was trying to break through, punch us in the face and say, wake up, start living, start doing the things that you were made to do, the way you were supposed to live. And so how do we do that? Like, that's the question, right? Some of us get that this is radical, and we counter it year after year, and we're kind of, we just feel guilty. Like, how do we do this? Well, the first step, right, is to use our eyes that we've never used before (laughs) and to look at Jesus, right? And for those of us who have used our eyes before and we have seen Jesus, we need to look at him again over and over again. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, not just once a year, but every week, right? It's because a part of kind of the radical reprogramming process that we're undergoing, we understand that that's not going to happen in our own power. We have to come back again and again to not just our model, but also the source of our ability to do that, to look at Christ, okay? So that's our first point. This is radically counterintuitive for us. Let's move to the second, and let's do that. Let's look at Jesus. Let's look at him going low. It's, it's so shocking on so many levels. I, wanna, I want you to be shocked, like Neo's muscles with the electricity. Be shocked by what's going on. Here's what normally we talk about, and this is the level of shock that we normally go to. Is kind of like, okay, hey, let's talk about the historically shocking nature of this. Right? In ancient, you know, Israel, the teacher doesn't wash the disciples' feet. That's not how things work. Right? In fact, even the chief slaves don't wash, like, anyone's feet. It's the lowest member of the slave group that normally would be charged with washing anyone's feet. It's such a disgusting kind of task especially in the ancient world where everybody's walking around getting all dirty, right? It's such a disgusting task that it's not, it's not given to anybody except for the lowest of the low. And, and it's certainly not something that the highest of the high would ever do, right? And, and that's, that's the context here, right? Jesus is the honored guest. He's the, the teacher. He's the one that's supposed to be receiving, not the one that's given, right? Okay, so that, that's, that's kind of shocking, Right? In the sense that, like, it would be shocking for us if we experienced this in any of our kind of cultural, historical kind of contexts. Right? You know, David Hill, who's a professor at NC State, if he started washing his students' feet, that would be shocking. Right? They'd be shocked. They're used to receiving criticism and, and direction from you, not, you know, you getting in between the toes to get the grime out. Right? That's not how that works. Okay. We get that. But I also want you to see that it's contextually in the moment shocking, right? We talked about this a little bit, but, you know, this is Jesus' last meal before he dies. He knows this. 
The disciples should know this. He's told them about it, <laughs> right? They, they, don't, they don't get it, right? It's his last meal. You know, you know when it's really hard to love somebody or, or, or to serve someone is when you're suffering. You're, you think about that? Like, let me just tell you about, like, Saturday nights at my house, right? I just let Katie know, hey, guess what? I'm preaching tomorrow. So I got all this stuff in my head. I'm really worried about how I'm going to be perceived. There's a lot of suffering going on in me right now. So guess what? The five kids, that's you. I'm not washing anybody's feet tonight. I'm not washing the dishes tonight. You're doing this because I need to be focused on, you know, me because I've got a lot going on, right? You don't expect to go in and visit someone in the hospital, right, who's suffering and dying because that's about where Jesus is, and have them serve you. You expect it to go the other way, but that's what's happening here. Another kind of contextually shocking part of this is the disciples arguing over who's the greatest. Are you kidding? They argued about it all through their time with Jesus. He was with them for three years. The list of knuckleheaded things that they did abounds. Read the Gospels. These guys were nuts. Like, they, they did nothing right. And, and so, you know, it's not like these guys were cute little puppies, right, that were, you know, just kind of hanging around Jesus, always doing kind of cool things. You know, you know there, there, there wasn't something that he was getting out of this relationship. It's not what you would call a healthy reciprocal relationship in which he poured into them and they kind of poured back. That wasn't how, how it worked. They, they were always doing the wrong thing. So not only is Jesus in enormous suffering, right, about to go to the cross, but there, he's also doing this with a group of people who, who he knows are going to fail him once again. They're about to all abandon him. One of them will betray him and actually be probably, you know, the reason that he's going there. Another one who's so boastful about how much he loves him will deny him three times. This is the group whose feet he washes. They don't deserve it. Not just because of their station, but because of their behavior. Contextually, it is shocking that Jesus does this. Now let's go another level and look at this theologically. <laughs> right? Jesus has, throughout John, right, there's all these I am statements and it culminates in him saying, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Jesus has repeatedly kind of pointed to the fact that he is God. <laughs> right? So this is not just a teacher watching his disciples' feet. This is the eternal God of the universe getting on his hands and knees, virtually naked, washing the feet of his disciples. Theologically, that is ridiculously shocking. You think back to the uh, temple, right? The Ark of the Covenant was, anybody know where that was? Class? The Holy of Holies, that's right. It was in the most holy place, right? Is the Ark of the Covenant. Archaeologists and biblical scholars kind of, um, you remember the Ark of the Covenant. It's the one that Indiana Jones found, right? So picture that in your mind because they, they did a good job of kind of representing it the way that it probably looked, right? It's got the angels on the top. It's a box. Remember, can you touch it? Can't touch it. You touch the Ark of the Covenant, right? You die, 
just like the Nazis did at the end of the movie, right? You don't touch it. <laughs> you don't open it. You don't, you know, it, it sits in there because this is the most holy place. But biblical and archaeological scholars, they, they understand, like, in the context of the ancient Near Eastern world, what was the ark supposed to represent? <clears throat> it wasn't the little box where God dwelt, okay? And the movie got that wrong. It was meant to represent a footstool, right? When the Shekinah glory descended upon the temple, it's like God was sitting on the top and, and in the Holy of Holies, right, were his feet. And once a year, only once a year after going a rigorous, like, cleansing process was the high priest allowed to go in and he had to have a rope tied around him because he might, you know, have an impure thought at some moment and just drop dead because he's where? At the feet of God. Right, which are covered by the angels' wings. That's why those angels have those wings, right? There's two of them covering the feet of God. So here's theologically the implications. You can't even go as a sinful human being to the foot of God, right? That's how holy he is, how majestic he is. And yet, here we have God going to the feet of his disciples and washing them. You see how shocking this is? Okay. Um, and, and you think about this. I mean, like, he's so intimate with them here. He's virtually naked. <laughs> Jesus is virtually naked as he does this. And you think about that theologically, right? Like, Moses wasn't even allowed to look at the face of God. He got to see his back, <laughs> right? Like, the idea of God being that intimate is so theologically shocking, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense in the context of the Bible unless you think about one particular contextual setting. That kind of love, that kind of display only makes sense in the context of the Trinity. If Jesus were to totally undress and start washing anyone's feet, it should be the feet of the Father, right? That's the picture where we tend to think of that being appropriate. And, and, and you think about the Trinity, right? The Trinity is this eternal kind of like uh, situation in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, are, are totally in love with each other totally um, magnifying each other, totally giving themselves over to each other. And if you're new to Christianity, the Trinity is this like mind-blowing concept where, you know, it's like there's three persons but one God. They're perfectly unified. And, and you know, that's what love is, right? When we, I did a wedding last week, weekend, that's what I talked about. I talked about how a, a wedding is actually a picture of the Trinity, right? The two becoming one, right? In, in the context of a relationship with God, the two becoming one, it's like that, that love is supposed to be that kind of unifying. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He's actually inviting his disciples back into the relationship which they were created for. Back into a relationship with God that is that intimate, that full of love, that raw. It's incredible. Listen to this quote um, from C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorites. I, I, I picked it up um, uh, from another sermon, um, so I didn't, I didn't, you know, find this and put this together myself. But 
uh, you got to think about this in, in the context of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. This is from um, The Problem of Pain. He says this, In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of all creation and of all being. For the eternal word gives himself in mortal sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary, for when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done at home in glory and gladness. From before the foundation of the world, Christ surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. As the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. C.S. <laughs> Lewis had a way with words. It's kind of an understatement. But, but listen to this again. I love this one line. For when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done at home in glory and gladness. Jesus in washing his disciples' feet, it being a picture of the cross, it's ultimately like just an expression of the pattern of how he lived in Trinitarian existence for eternity. Right? And he's coming to the wild weather of his outlying province. So when we talk about this being counterintuitive, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the wild weather of the outlying provinces. That's where we live. But Jesus broke through the wild weather to calm the storm, to bring us the picture of what love really looks like, right? in the eternal context of the Trinity. It's a portal that he's opening, showing us, hey, look, this is what life is supposed to look like. This is what Jesus is trying to rebuild. John 13 actually begins uh, an arc, right? And moves towards John 17, which is the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays, Lord, may my disciples, may they be one with each other and one with you as you and I are one. And, and, you know, you look back at the beginning of this passage, John, John uh, 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, that's, that's the context that he rose from the supper, right? Do you see? He's just living out the pattern of his existence, of his life, and he's calling us into that. And that brings me to my final point. The call to go low is a radical blessing and not a chore. It's not something to be dismissed, and it's not this unreasonable chore that we should hate, right? It's something to be embraced because it is this call to real life, okay? Um, I do want to acknowledge, though, that it is costly. <laughs> it is costly to live the way that the Trinity lives in the wild weather of the outlying provinces. You see that, right? It costs Jesus something. He went straight to the cross after this, right? His, his way of living, his way of loving led to his dying. Um, that's why he tells us, brothers and sisters, that following him means we take up our cross and we follow him. We like the follow him. We don't like the cross, but it, it's going to cost. We have to recognize that, okay? And, and we also need to recognize that it's vulnerable and risky, Right? Uh, Jesus was naked. We don't like opening up the way that he's doing this with the disciples. We don't like the kind of risk and vulnerability that's going on here, right? But that is the kind of vulnerability uh, that exists in heaven. And that is the sort of love and relationship that we're called to, right? Um, we're afraid of it, though. Why? 
Because here in the wild weather of the outlying provinces, you open yourself up, often you're rejected, just like Jesus was rejected, right? So it's going to be costly. There's probably going to be some rejection. <laughs> um, and, and so we're going to have to do this. And, and that is hard. I want to acknowledge that. I'm not, I, I, I'm not trying to minimize the cost of our discipleship with Jesus Christ. But I do want you to see that this is a blessing. And, and part of how we're going to get there, Hebrews 12 gives us a, a picture, something that's helpful, I think. This is Hebrews uh, 12. It says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's some of us who have grown weary and lost heart. So, uh, but this helps us to recapture the beauty of what discipleship um, with Christ looks like. Listen to it. We're just going to go through this real quickly. Ha, ha, notice the beginning. For the joy set before him, there's a gift. This incredible joy, eternal joy is the gift, right? That's the joy that Jesus is experiencing in heaven. That's the joy that awaits us. So there's this future joy, and how do we get there? How do we experience this gift? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We, we look at his pattern. It shouldn't be surprising to us that it's costly or that we're rejected in this world. We, we understand that that's going to be the case. But, but look where it got him, right? Paul Miller has his book, The J-Curve, Right? That you go down into suffering and then you rise into glory. That's what happened to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's what's going to happen to us. Right? We need to look through the portal that he opened and see into the eternal. Because when we do that, we realize that what he's calling us to is a gift, not a curse. Right? Also notice that he endured and he scorned. Right? That's what Hebrews says. He endured the cross and scorned the shame. I talked about the cost. There's an endurance portion of this. There is a sense in which this is hard. But I want you to understand, enduring the cross, enduring hardship and suffering in this life is possible because you have enough to endure. You who have been given Jesus Christ have everything. Right? You know, we, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, during the, the virus of, you know, us just kind of enduring, right, the financial hit, the medical hit, whatever, right? Here, here's the reality uh, in Jesus Christ. You have all that you need. So anything that this world could ask of you, you got a bankroll that, that can endure that. You can weather this. <laughs> right, little tiny storm before the eternal portal, <laughs> before you go to be with God for eternity and revel in the riches and glory and splendor and health and security that is yours in Jesus, right? So it's a little bit of endurance for, you know, because we have so much, we can, we can totally do that. It's so easy. It was so, in some sense, like, you think about Jesus coming. Why was he able to do that? It's because he had a big bankroll, <laughs> bigger than anything. We do too. And notice too, scorning the shame. Scorning the shame. There is going to be so much shame heaped upon us, brothers and sisters, because we're Christians, 
right? If you live the way Jesus lived, if you love the way he loved, people will reject you. There will be shame. But I want you to think about it. Think about this. Like a middle school dance. I worked in a middle school for 10 years. Middle school dance. What happens? All the boys line up over here. All the girls line up over here. All the teachers are scratching their head going, why aren't they dancing? We're playing their favorite music. (laughs) That's what happens at a middle school dance every time. Why? Because the guys don't want the shame of going over and asking a girl to dance and then getting in the floor while all their buddies ridicule them for dancing with a girl. Right? (laughs) Why would you ever dance with a girl? They have cooties. Right? They're still getting over that mindset. (laughs) Like, kids, if you're at home and you're listening to this, boys, listen, it's okay to dance with girls. It's 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 okay. Scorn that shame when you get to middle school. Go over and ask a girl to dance with you and, and, and party out, man. That's what we're called to do, right, as believers. We're called to reject, to scorn the shame of the middle school dance. Stop being afraid of getting in the center of the floor and breaking it down. That's what Jesus has called us to. Scorn the shame, right? And then the last part of, of the, the Hebrews 12 passage is, is he sits down at the right hand of the Father, right? The, the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. Well, that's the greatest seat in heaven, right? Jesus was the greatest, okay? I hope that goes without saying, right? Jesus was the greatest. And, and after he scorned and adored and he did the J-curve and went up into heaven, rose up into heaven, what was there for him? Eternal security and glory. And that's what's waiting for us, Right? Do you see how it feels like a chore, but it's really a blessing? It's really a blessing, this call to this life. And and it's easy to kind of like, okay, well, let's look through the portal and talk about the future of our heavenly existence. That is the the, the goodness, the blessing of this call. But but I want to submit to you that that there's actually blessing now. (laughs) That it's not just pie in the sky by and by. It is that. But... And it's great pie, by the way. But, but there's, there's stuff here for us now. Um, you know, I think about the disciples arguing about, man, who's the greatest? I mean, just think about that picture, right? Here they are with the true greatest, having a meal. What would you give to be able to have a physical meal with Jesus right before he's about to go to the cross? What would you talk about? Would you talk about your achievements? No. It would be all about, like, oh, Jesus, man, it, talk to me, right? Like, the, the disciples on an island of self-isolation by virtue of their selfishness. Remember the movie uh, Cars, right? It's been out for, like, 20 years, so I feel good about spoiling the ending. That's where this is going. So if you haven't seen it and you're watching on, online, you can pause it movie you should have done it like you know 15 years ago at least but you know those of you who are outside in the parking lot I'm sorry I'm about to spoil the ending if you haven't seen it so but cars where does it begin you got lightning McQueen he's like the best right where is he he's stuck in the trailer all by himself he's got no friends none even his agent doesn't really like him (laughs) right he's he's totally isolated and alone and, um, and that is what, like, our self-important kind of lives get us. 
So I would submit to you that right now there are probably ways in which our selfishness and our lack of service are creating isolation and loneliness for us in the same way that it did that for Lightning McQueen. Listen again to this quote from Lewis. There's a second part, okay? Um, for when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done in glory and gladness. Okay, we talked about that. For before the foundation of the world, Christ surrenders begotten deity back to begotten deity in obedience. Now listen to this. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son, from the highest to the lowest. Self exists to be abdicated. And by that abdication becomes the more truly self to be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so on forever. This is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. That fierce imprisonment in the self, self-giving is the absolute reality. Okay? Do you see that? Some of us are living in hell because we have decided that living the way of the cross, washing feet, serving others, is a chore. The reality is, is it's a blessing. Um, McQueen, right, the end, I told you I was going to spoil the ending. I started with the beginning. Right, what happens? He gets in trouble and he actually has to serve Right? He has to pave the road in Radiator Springs. And as he starts actually serving, like he starts doing it in a selfish way, like I'm going to plow through this, I'm going to do, do it so fast so I can get back to the race and the things that are important about me. And it's terrible, right? But slowly over time he learns he's got to serve the people in the community. That was the intent of what he was supposed to do. And as he does that, he forms relationships and all of a sudden he has friends. And what happens? He's transformed, and by the end of the movie, what happens? Instead of winning the race, he goes, this is the ruining part. He goes back, and he gets the king who's about to retire, and he drives him across the finish line. He loses the race. 30 for 30 on a loser. There it is. Because he served. John Piper said this, you'll find the deepest joys in life are not when people are hailing you in your status, but when they are helped by you in your service. I want to end this way. We're about to head into Thanksgiving. And um, one thing that I've noticed is that um, Thanksgiving and Christmas are on a decline. I was, I was talking to somebody, and they were, they were recently telling me, they're, they're, you know, my favorite holiday is Halloween. <laughs> and I was kind of like, you know, Halloween might be my favorite holiday. <laughs> Why is that? Well, Halloween is all about just having fun. You know, you get dressed up and real super kooky and you go out and you go crazy. You don't have to deal with your extended family like you do on Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> right? I said it. Mom, Dad, I love you. <laughs> if you're out there watching online. <laughs> but, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas are on a decline because it's, it's hard sometimes to be with your family, man. You know? And, and you kind of have this expectation of going home with family, it's going to be easy, right? I'm just going to be able to chill and relax, and it's often not that way. Here's what we're going to need to do if we're going to be transformed, right? Kind of like Lightning McQueen. We're going to have to sandbox this a little bit. We're going to have to practice. This is something we're going to have to regularly kind of get into the rhythm of. And I would like to submit to you that Thanksgiving is a great sandbox for us to try and live this out. So here's what I want you to do. Every morning that you're at home or wherever you are with family or how, whatever that looks like, 
I'd like you to turn to John 13 and, and I, this, these couple of verses and meditate on Jesus. Look at him with your eyes that are opened. And then I want you to allow that to be instructive for how you engage your family. Wash their feet. <laughs> if you want to wash their feet literally, knock yourself out. Um, but I would suggest to you that there's all sorts of ways in which there are power dynamics in your family and you have some power, right? Rather than exercising that power over people, serve them like Jesus did. Go low. And see if Thanksgiving doesn't start to rise in its stock as you draw closer to your family. And allow that to be a picture of how you then move into other spheres of your life, other opportunities to do that. I would submit to you that there's all sorts of them. There's all sorts of ways in which you have authority and power over someone, and you can go low because that's the pattern of our Savior, and it's a pattern he gave you as a gift, not as a curse. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.